This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Why are you so hard to love? Is a question I ask myself. Or maybe my wife asks me because I make it hard to love. There are times that I really don't even want to be loved. Or maybe it's hard to love me at times because I'm not so honest about my preferences or what I would like. Or maybe I'm feeling guilty for the way that I've lived. And when people tell me that I love you, Thomas, it's hard to receive that because I think, gosh, if you really knew who I was, then you wouldn't be saying those things. And it's just challenging to love me. And I don't know what your reasons are, but I would imagine that some people in your life would say, at times you are hard to love. And that only comes from being in relationship with people. Relationships are so interesting to me because relationships are absolutely vital to our life. When, when I think of relationships, I have a lot of things on my mind. I spent this week and asked you to send me a couple pictures of things maybe you've been doing this summer with family and friends of what comes to mind when you think about relationships in your life. And, and here's what you sent in. You sent in pictures with dads hiking with sons, moms getting together, friends getting together to work out, uh, going out camping as a life group or a community, traveling with friends even, seeing grandparents with grandkids, seeing parents with children. You even sent me a picture of your love relationship with your pets. There's a picture of the Gertsons with all their puppies that I think are out of the house now. But think about all the different ways in which we experience relationships. Many of the relationships we have are just because we were born into them. Others' relationships that we have are because we we chose them. We want to be around these people. We have common interests. But no matter what, if you're an introvert or an extrovert, relationships are important to us at some level. Question is why? Why are relationships so important and what makes relationships so difficult? Well, it's important to remember that you were made, wired, created, shaped to be in relationship. See, in the very beginning of the Bible, the first pages of Genesis, when God is laying out his creation story of how this all came to be, God says to himself, let us, there's the plural pronoun, let us, this earliest picture of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us who are in divine love relationship make humanity, men and women, in our likeness, in our image. And I would say that part of being made in the image of God is to be made in the image of relationship or needing relationship or wanting relationship. It's not as though God made us to fill a relationship void, but that he in perfect relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, birthed humanity out of a love relationship. And we're hardwired for relationships, first and foremost with God, to be connected with God in relationship and then to be connected with each other in relationship and even, I would say, creation. And why are they so hard? Well, they're hard because that's exactly what got broken when we rebelled against God. When when you see Adam and Eve rebel against God and then you see the fallout of sin, we see the very relationships fractured. First and foremost, their relationship with God. When God comes to the garden and says, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? And Adam is hiding. He says, Lord, I heard your voice and I was afraid. And so I hid. And so this perfect relationship that he had with God was now fractured. The connection he was made to have was now broken. Instead of trusting God, he was afraid of God. 
And then the relationship he had with his wife and that Eve had with her husband became broken as well, where they would see each other authentically, says naked, knowing each other perfectly exposed. And there was no shame. Now there was shame between them. And they began to blame each other and their perfect relationship experienced brokenness. And then we see even our relationship with creation, broken, frustrated. This is why relationships are so hard. It's why we also crave relationships. We're both made for it. And that's exactly what's broken. The thing that we need the most is the thing we often fear the most. The thing we need the most relationship with God, we, we have fear to come to God. The relationship we need with each other, we fear each other because we hurt each other. In this COVID season, we're afraid of each other because we think that you're going to give us COVID or I'm going to give you COVID and get you sick. And we've distanced ourselves because we fear each other. So the very thing we need the most is the thing we fear the most. And this is why Jesus Christ came to restore with us in God. That he so loved the world that God sent his son and that Jesus Christ lived, died, and was resurrected in a divine love rescue mission. If you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter five, where it speaks about the love of God for us and that we who have been reconciled back to God are now called to walk in the same ways of God's love, a restorative love, a love that repairs broken relationships. Here's Ephesians chapter five, verse one. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So we're called to walk in this way. That's the title of our series that we've been in, is what are the marks of a disciple, someone who loves God, follows God? How do they walk in the ways of God? Well, one of those marks of a disciple is that a disciple walks in the way of God's love, in the love of Christ that he showed us. A love that came and was actually a sacrifice. A love that came and submitted himself unto death for our behalf. And we're called now to walk in that way. Ephesians is actually a really great book for us to, to spend some time in this morning. When it talks about our new identity and then how to live out our identity, the book of Ephesians is written by a man named Paul. Paul wrote to a church in a city called Ephesus. And this letter was actually not only to the church of Ephesus, but to circulate with surrounding churches. And the book is broken into two really parts, the first three chapters and the second three chapters. And the first three chapters are talking about your new identity, that those who have been reconciled back to God and his family, who have their relationship with God repaired, have, given, have been given a new identity. They've been sealed with his spirit and then their whole identity is transformed. And it goes to those marvelous ways of how you're being made new and how you are being brought in. And then the second half is in light of what God has done in transforming your identity, giving you a new identity. Now there's a way that we walk. Five times we, we see Paul's call to walk a new way in the new identity, that we would walk in a way that's worthy of what God has done for us. So let's look at just a chapter before this in Ephesians chapter four, where it talks about walking in this way of love, of loving relationships that has a unique outcome, which is keeping the unity together. So Ephesians chapter four, look at, we'll read the first seven verses or so. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So here, Paul points out, okay, you have a new identity. You've been brought into the family of God. Now you're children of God. And as, as different families have different mantras and different values and different ethics, he's saying, now walk out the ethic of the family of God. And one of those things is that we would walk in the love that imitates Christ's love towards us. A love that is eager to keep the unity of believers. Why does unity matter to God in his family? Why does unity matter to you maybe who's in a family? Unity of a family shows the family off in a certain way. In fact, Jesus prays for unity of his, of his children on the night he was betrayed. If we went to John chapter 17, we would find Jesus praying on the evening of his betrayal. There he's pleading with the father over many things. And did you know on that evening, Jesus prayed for you? Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus prayed for me that evening? He prayed for us. This is what he says. This is John chapter 17. We'll pick it up in verse 20. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, future disciples. He prays this, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become, become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So our unity of believers has a profound witness to the world. Our unity, our love for one another puts on display God's love. It shows the world that God truly has a son named Jesus, that the message of Jesus is true and is trusted and that we should be listened to. Our unity of coming together and keeping the unity, the bonds of peace as Paul talks about, actually shows the world that the message of Christianity is true. Does your heart grieve as mine does? That this is, this is the witness to the world, our oneness. That our message is to be believed. That God loves them, has died for them. And I look at the world in a global sense of the church and I grieve because I think we've lost our witness a bit. We've allowed divisions to come in where there shouldn't be any divisions. And we have separated ourselves from other believers in ways that we should never have separated ourselves. And we pick fights with other believers. And you know what's lost? Is our witness to the world that Jesus is the son of God. This is why it's so important that we pay attention today because the witness of God's love to the world is on the line. The second reason I think that unity is so important is actually what Paul goes to in Ephesians chapter four is that he calls us that we're being built up in one body with one head, Jesus being the head. 
and that we actually grow up in the faith. We mature in our faith, no longer children tossed to and fro and, and scared as we keep the unity, that we grow up in our faith and we mature in our belief, in our convictions as we grow together. That our faith does not mature when it's just you plus Jesus, but it's you in community plus Jesus. It's the community of believers that allows our faith to mature and to grow. And so we need one another because we grow up in Christ together. And so unity is so important because it's the witness to the world and it's the way that we mature and grow in our faith because we do that together. Now notice this, we go back to Ephesians chapter four. Notice this, that we are to, that we are called to keep the, the unity, be eager to maintain the unity that's in the spirit. Our love for one another does not generate unity. It does not create unity. The unity that you and I have is found in the spirit. That's why there's one spirit. There's one body. There's one hope. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. That's what brings us into unity. It's not our preferences. It's not our interests. Like all the other clubs in the world are centered around homogenous groups of you like cycling, let's join the cycling club. You're athletic, you're musical, you're talented, you're creative, you're an artist, you're a thinker, you're a mathematician. All those things create subgroups, but not so in the body of Christ. We've said this multiple times and I'll echo it again here. The body of Christ is the largest, most diverse group of people on the planet. It's not our sameness that brings us together. It's our unity in Christ. And so the body of Christ is oneness with uniqueness. It's not our unity, our unity is not a utopian unity in which we all look and think and act exactly the same. There wouldn't be beauty there. What God is forming in Christ is the most beautiful family of all nations, ethnicities, young and old, rich and poor, where the unity of believers can bring their diversity of interest, their diversity of background, their diversity of being human to where it doesn't matter about your age. It doesn't matter about your socioeconomic class. It doesn't matter about your skin color, that we are brought in the unity in the spirit what we're called to do in our loving relationships is to walk in an eager expectation of maintaining that unity. Do you see the picture now? This is why our unity is a witness to the world. This is what the world is craving right now so that we can bring diversity into unity, diversity of thought. That's only gonna happen in Christ. It'll only happen under the headship of Christ. And so it's when we put on display to the world how we love one another and keep the unity that they say, wow, what do they believe? It must be true. I mean, look at how they love each other. I wouldn't love any of those people. They're hard to love. They don't think the way that I think. They don't vote the way that I vote. They don't even see life the same way, but yet they love each other. How is that possible? It's a witness to Jesus Christ himself. And so it's not our sameness, it's our oneness with uniqueness, our diversity in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The one faith, one hope, one father, one spirit, one baptism, one, one faith. Now, how do we keep the unity then? So if our call is not to generate unity, but to actually maintain unity, 
that only unity can be brought with Jesus Christ. So then how do we maintain that? Here, Paul gives three attributes of how do we maintain this unity? There's probably more, but I think these three will be enough for us today. There's three things that Paul says that we would be humble, gentle, and patient with one another. Now, those are three attributes that actually help maintain unity. Let me just go through them real quick with you. First one is this idea of humility. I don't know, you know, humility has been defined so many different ways. Uh, Probably my favorite, I don't know who said it, but humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. It's it's putting your others first and yourself second. It's understanding that other people have preferences that should be heard and listened to. In fact, this is what I would call your teachability. Is a humble person is teachable. See, a prideful person is eager to be heard. A prideful person is eager to be right. A humble person is eager to listen, is eager to understand, is eager to learn. They have this spirit of being teachable, that they want to know what other people think. They want to hear other people's opinions. That's what makes them humble. Not that they think less of themselves, but they think, less, they think of themselves less often. They're teachable people. Now, how do you know if you're a teachable person, if you're a humble person? Perhaps you could ask someone if you're a teachable person. I thought about asking some people I work with this week if, if they thought I was a teachable person, but then I decided not to because, you know, what do they know anyway? Well, I'm just kidding. I, I actually would consider asking someone. And if, if you're wondering if you're a teachable person, humble, ask someone in your life, do you think I'm a teachable person? And if they say no, and the first thing that comes to your mind is, ah, what do they know? That might be a red flag. Might be an area to say, okay, I need to grow up in this because pride divides. Humility unites. Humility is eager to keep the unity, the bonds of peace. The second thing he talks about is that we would be gentle. Now, when we hear the word gentleness, we often think of weakness as though people who are gentle are just weak people and we don't wanna be weak people. In fact, some of these attributes weren't even that desirable in the first century when this was written. It's so contrary to the popular culture of the day. And I would say it's probably contrary to our culture today too. But gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is an attribute of strength. If, if you are weak, you don't need gentleness. If you are strong, if you have power, that's when you need gentleness. Let me illustrate this way. We have four kids. My wife and I have four kids, two girls and two boys. And every time we welcomed a new baby into the house, the older siblings would want to hold their little sister or little brother. Now, starting with the youngest who wants to hold their little baby brother, they're not strong enough to hold their baby brother. And their baby brother is something that's valuable, but it's also someone who's fragile. So they're valuable and they're fragile. And so what you do is you have the other little kids sit on the couch, right? And you say, okay, now I need to do your big muscles. You're gonna hold your brother up. Make sure you hold his head up and sitting on the couch and really not even letting go of, of your baby. You place them in the hands of their siblings who aren't strong enough to hold them up. And you're trying to encourage them to use all their muscles to hold them up because they're kind of weak. They're not actually able to do it. But then the older siblings ask to hold their little brother. And they're over there wrestling and fighting on the couch. Like, we want to hold him next. No, I'm holding him next. And you take your little, little boy and you bring him over to their older sibling. And what do you tell them? Be gentle. Don't, don't hit him. He's a little guy. You know, he, he's really valuable to mommy and daddy, but he's also vulnerable. He, he's delicate. And so don't pull his arms off. Don't poke him in the eye. Be real gentle. Why do they need gentleness? It's because they have strength. Gentleness brings strength under control. 
And so if humility is illustrated by our teachability, I would say our gentleness is demonstrated by our temperament. Is are we able to bring our strength under control? Our strength of words, our strength of mental capacities, our, our strength of thought, our strength of our hands. Gentleness allows things that are valuable and vulnerable to feel safe in our hands, to be safe in our presence. Jesus is the perfect illustration of this. Remember, remember in Matthew chapter 11, this is verses 28 and 29, Jesus makes this profound statement. He says, are you weary? Are you tired? Do you labor and are worn out? Are you in a season of being weak? Come to me and I will give you rest. For I am, what does he say? For I am what? I am gentle. Now here's Jesus. I mean, he's, he's the most powerful being in the world. And if you're weak and you're wounded and you're worn out, you, know, you don't really want to run to the, to the strongest people because you know, they might hurt you. They might take advantage of you. How do you know that Jesus is safe to go to? What power Jesus has? How do you know he's safe and can provide rest? It's because he's gentle. He's gentle. It's his temperament to care for you. And so when you enter the presence of someone who is strong and gentle, that means their strength can hold things together, can uphold you. And that's a place of rest. Gentleness is what allows strong people to produce, not to produce, but to keep the unity amongst believers. I'll tell you this, I, I have these conversations all the time with you, young and old. And I know how relationships have been fractured because people with great strength of words and hands have not been gentle. I've seen the division of parents with kids where kids are feeling weak and vulnerable because of maybe bad decisions that they've made or just where they're at. And they don't want to run over to mom. They don't want to run to dad because mom is so strong with her words. They're not gentle words. Dad is so strong with his words or strong with his hands that I would never tell him I failed because it's not a safe place to go. And so relationships are divided because of a lack of gentleness. This is why Paul calls us, be gentle in our love. It's our temperament of strength that allows a place to be safe enough to keep the unity, the bonds of peace. This last one is patience. So humility is our teachability and our, and our gentleness is our temperament. Patience, I would, I would just say is our timing. You know the right thing to do. You know the right direction to go. You even know the end result. And it's like, hurry up, people. Come on with me. Come on. Keep up. Keep up. Patience is, the, is knowing the right thing and knowing when to do the right thing. Patience is knowing the right thing to say and knowing when to say the right thing. It's our patience that keeps us together. Once again, God is the perfect example to look for if we need to grow up in our patience. Remember, remember the apostle Peter? He wrote, he wrote a couple of books and he writes to those who are following Christ and, and they're weary wondering how long will these challenging days last? When will the Lord come? And this is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where Peter just reminds them, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. You think the Lord's slow? I think sometimes he's slow. Like how much longer in coronavirus, how much longer until we're all together worshiping in one place? And Peter says, he's not slow in keeping his promises. No, he's not slow. He is, you know what Peter tells us? He's patient. This is an attribute of patience, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to faith. 
He knows the right thing. He knows the outcome of what people are going to believe. And yet he's giving time. It's his patience that allows time to exist for you to come to faith and be built up in faith. That's what, that's what patience is. Let me ask you this question. When did you come to faith? Maybe you were a child. Maybe it was your teens. Maybe it was later in life. Some of my friends have come to faith in their 70s and 80s. Aren't you so thankful that God has been patient with you, allowing time to exist for you to come to him and grow up in him? How long did it take you to fully trust God with all of your finances, with all of your future and with all of your health? Well, I'm still, I'm still in process on those things. I'm so thankful that God is patient with me. It's his patience that allows me to be in his presence. See, for those of us who aren't patient and we rush ahead and we don't wait for our brothers and sisters to mature and grow with us, well, you might rush ahead, but because of your speed, I can't go with you. Because of your speed, we can't journey together. And patience is the ability to slow the pace down with those who might be weaker, slower, less mature, and saying, we will journey together. I will love you like Christ loved me, surrendering his pace to mine so that we can go together. These are the attributes that keep the unity. They don't generate unity. Only God's family generates the unity found in Jesus Christ. But to maintain the unity, we want to be people who are humble, teachable, gentle, our temperament. And we want to be patient, knowing the right timing. How are you doing in those three areas? Maybe you'd ask someone in your life to assess those three areas in your, in your life. We need those unlike anything today. The elders were gathering this week and Tom and I were talking to them about this next season. And we had this shepherding meeting where we were praying for the church, praying through the prayer requests and having this discussion about unity. How is it that from an elder board level, we can create and, and sustain this beautiful unity that God has given us. And so we had this great conversation of how do we lead in unity? And as we looked at the fall, we knew that there are gonna be things that wanna divide us. Political decisions, our comfortability with coronavirus. Are we able to be in the same space or not the same space? Big space, small space. Is the church opening the way I want it to open or is it not opening the way I want it to open and open in a different way? These are all opportunities for the body to be divided over things that should not divide us. And if we allow them to divide us, what will be lost once again is our witness to the world and our growth and maturity in faith. And so perhaps, perhaps friend, for the sake of our witness and for the sake of our faith, we stay together. We fight, just like Paul says, be eager to keep the unity, the bonds of peace. And in order to do that, we need to become humble, become gentle, become patient with one another. I love you. God loves you. And we want to stay together. Let's ask him for help. Father, I ask that you would be the one that helps us. That you've already brought us in your family and given us a new identity. And we want to walk in the way of the love of Christ. Walking in a way that's worthy of the new identity we've been given in the family of God. Give us these loving relationships with one another that keeps the bonds of peace. Father, I pray for men and women at Calvary to be humble men and women, to be gentle men and women, to be patient men and women with one another.
Let the strong Lord care for the weak. Let the fast Lord pace themselves with those who are slow. Father, I just ask that in all things, you would allow Calvary Bible Church to display your love for the world who's craving unity with diversity, to see it in the family of God. Help them see it here, Lord. And then after seeing it, come to faith and join the family. I pray that for our local church and, and the local churches in our area, may we be one as your church. Pray for the church globally, Lord, that we be one globally together. Father, we love you. Thank you for saving us and bringing us in your family. Give us the boldness to now walk as children of God. Amen.